Chapter forty eight of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter forty eight. Around her path a vision's glow is cast. Back, back her loved one comes in hues of morn. For her the gulf is filled, the dark night fled, whose mystery parts the living and the dead. Hemans. As Gertrude's eyes, after greedily devouring the manuscript, fell upon its closing words, she sprung to her feet, and the next instant her little room, the floor strewed with the scattered sheets, which had dropped from her lap as she rose, is left vacant. She has flown down the staircase, escaped through the hall door, and bounding over a lawn at the back of the house, now wet with the evening dew, she approaches the summer-house from the opposite entrance to that at which Mr. Amory, with folded arms and a fixed countenance, is watching for her coming. So noiseless is her light step, that before he is conscious of her presence, she has thrown herself upon his bosom, and her whole frame trembling with the vehemence of long-suppressed, and now uncontrolled agitation, she bursts into a torrent of passionate tears, interrupted only by frequent sobs, so deep and so exhausting, that her father, with his arms folded tightly around her, and clasping her so closely to his heart that she feels its irregular beating, endeavors to still the tempest of her grief, whispering softly, as to an infant, "'Hush, hush, my child, you frighten me!' And gradually, soothed by his gentle caresses, her excitement subsides, and she is able to lift her face to his, and smile upon him through her tears. They stand thus for many minutes, in a silence that speaks far more than words, wrapped in the folds of his heavy cloak to preserve her from the evening air, and still encircled in his strong embrace. Gertrude feels that their union of spirit is not less complete, while the long-banished man, who for years has never felt the sweet influence of a kindly smile, glows with a melting tenderness which hardening solitude has not had the power to subdue. Again and again the moon retires behind a cloud, and peeps out to find them still in the attitude in which she saw them last. At length, as she gains a broad and open expanse, and looks clearly down, Mr. Amory, lifting his daughter's face, and gazing into her glistening eyes, while he gently strokes the disordered hair from her forehead, asks, in an accent of touching appeal, "'You will love me, then?' "'Oh, I do, I do!' exclaimed Gertrude, sealing his lips with kisses. His hitherto unmoved countenance relaxes at this fervent assurance. He bows his head upon her shoulders, and the strong man weeps. Not long, however, her self-possession all restored at seeing him thus overcome. Gertrude places her hand in his, and startles him from his position, by the firm and decided tone with which she whispers, Come! Whither? exclaims he, looking up in surprise. To Emily. With a half-shudder, and a mournful shake of the head, he retreats, instead of advancing in the direction in which she would lead him. I cannot. But she waits for you. She, too, weeps and longs, and prays for your coming. Emily, you know not what you were saying, my child. Indeed, indeed, my father, it is you who are deceived. Emily does not hate you. She never did. She believed you dead long ago. But your voice, though heard but once, has half robbed her of her reason. So wholly, so entirely does she love you still. Come, and she will tell you, better than I, what a wretched mistake has made martyrs of you both. Emily, who had heard the voice of Willie Sullivan, as he bade Gertrude farewell on the doorstep, and rightly conjectured that it was he, forbore making any inquiries for the absent girl at the tea-table. 
and thinking it probable that she preferred to remain undisturbed, retired to the sitting-room at the conclusion of the meal, where, as Mr. Graham sought the library, she remained alone for more than an hour. It was a delightful, social-looking room. The fire still burned brightly, sending forth a ruddy glow, and, as the evening was unusually chilly for the season, rendering the temperature of the great old-fashioned parlor highly agreeable. There were candles under the mirror, but they did not give light enough to destroy the pleasant effect of the shadows which the firelight made upon the wall and about the couch where Emily was reclining. The invalid girl, if we may call her such, for in spite of ill health she still retained much of the freshness and all of the loveliness of her girlhood, had by chance chosen such a position, opposite to the cheerful blaze, that its flickering light played about her face, and brought to view the rich and unwanted bloom which inward excitement had called up in her usually pale countenance. The exquisite and refined taste which had always made Emily's dress an index to the soft purity of her character was never more strikingly developed than when she wore, as on the present occasion, a flowing robe of white cashmere, fastened at the waist with a silken girdle, and with full drapery sleeves, whose lining and border of snowy silk could only have been rivaled by the delicate hand and wrist which had escaped from beneath their folds, and somewhat nervously played with the heavy crimson fringe of a shawl, worn in the chilly dining-room, and now thrown carelessly over the arm of the sofa. Supporting herself upon her elbow, she sat with her head bent forward, and as she watched the images reflected in the glass of memory, one who knew her not, and was unaware of her want of sight, might have believed that, looking forth from her long drooping eyelashes, she were tracing imaginary forms among the shining embers, so intently was her face bent in that direction. Occasionally, as the summer wind sighed among the branches of the trees, causing them to beat lightly against the window-pane, she would lift her head from the hand on which it rested, and gracefully arching her slender throat, incline in a listening attitude, and then, as the trifling nature of the sound betrayed itself, she would sink, with a low sigh, into her former somewhat listless position. Once Mrs. Prime opened the door, looked around the room in search of the housekeeper, and not finding her, retreated across the passage, saying to herself as she did so, "'Law, dear sakes alive, I wish she only had eyes now, to see how like a picture she looks.' At length a low, quick bark from the house-dog once more attracted her attention, and in a moment steps were heard crossing the piazza. Before they had gained the door, Emily was standing upright, straining her ear to catch the sound of every footfall, and when Gertrude and Mr. Amory entered, she looked more like a statue than a living figure, as with clasped hands, parted lips, and one foot slightly advanced, she silently awaited their approach. One glance at Emily's face, another at that of her agitated father, and Gertrude was gone. She saw the completeness of their mutual recognition, and with instinctive delicacy, forbore to mar by her presence the sacredness of so holy an interview. As the door closed upon her retreating figure, Emily parted her clasped hands, stretched them forth into the dim vacancy, and murmured, Philip. He seized them between both of his, and with one step forward, fell upon his knees. As he did so, the half-fainting girl dropped upon the seat behind her. Mr. Amory bowed his head upon the hands, which, still held tightly between his own, now rested on her lap, and hiding his face upon her slender fingers, tremblingly uttered her name. "'The grave has given up its dead,' exclaimed Emily. "'My God, I thank thee!' And extracting her hands from his convulsive grasp, she flung her arms around his neck, 
rested her head upon his bosom, and whispered, in a voice half choked with emotion, "'Philip, dear, dear Philip, am I dreaming, or have you come back again?' The conventional rules, the enforced restrictions, which often set limits to the outbursts of natural feeling, had no existence for one so wholly the child of nature as Emily. She and Philip had loved each other in their childhood. Before that childhood was fully passed, they had parted, and as children they met again. During the lapse of many years, in which, shut out from the world, she had lived among the cherished memories of the past, she had been safe from worldly contagion, and had retained all the guileless simplicity of girlhood, all the freshness of her springtime, and Philip, who had never willingly bound himself by any ties, save those imposed upon him by circumstance and necessity, felt his boyhood come rushing upon him once more. As with Emily's soft hand resting on his head, she blessed heaven for his safe return. She could not see how time had silvered his hair, and sobered and shaded the face that she loved, whether he came in the shape of the fiery-eyed youth that she saw him last, the middle-aged man with hoary hair, whose years the curious found it hard to determine, or the glorified angel which she had pictured to herself in every dream of heaven. It was all alike to one whose world was a world of spirits. And to him, as he beheld the face he had half dreaded to encounter, beaming with the holy light of sympathy and love, the blind girl's countenance seemed encircled with a halo not of earth, and therefore this union had in it less of earth than heaven. Had they wakened on the other side of the grave, and soul met soul in that happy land where the long-parted meet, their rapture could scarcely have been more pure, their happiness more unalloyed. Not until, seated beside each other, with their hands still fondly clasped, Philip had heard from Emily's lips the history of her hopes, her fears, her prayers, and her despair, and she, while listening to the sad incidents of his life, had dropped upon the hand she held many a kiss and tear of sympathy. Did either fully realize the mercy, so long delayed, so fully accorded now, which promised even on earth to crown their days? Emily wept at the tale of Lucy's trials and her early death, and when she learned that it was hers and Philip's child whom she had taken to her heart, and fostered with the truest affection, she sent up a silent prayer of gratitude that it had been allotted to her apparently bereaved and darkened destiny to fulfill so blessed a mission. "'If I could love her more, dear Philip,' exclaimed she, while the tears trickled down her cheeks, "'I would do so for your sake, and that of her sweet, innocent, suffering mother.' "'And you forgive me, then, Emily?' said Philip, as both having finished their sad recitals of the past, they gave themselves up to the sweet reflection of their present joy. "'Forgive! Oh, Philip, what have I to forgive?' "'The deed that locked you in prison darkness,' he mournfully replied. "'Philip!' exclaimed Emily, in a reproachful tone. "'Could you for one moment believe that I attributed that to you, "'that I blamed you for an instant even in my secret thought?' "'Not willingly, I am sure, dear Emily. "'But, oh, you have forgotten what I can never forget, "'that in your time of anguish, not only the obtruding thought, "'but the lip that gave utterance to it, "'proclaimed how your soul refused to pity "'and forgive the cruel hand that wrought you so much woe. "'You, cruel Philip, never even in my wild frenzy "'did I so abuse and wrong you. "'If my unfilial heart sinfully railed "'against the cruel injustice of my father, "'it was never guilty of such treachery towards you.' That findish woman lied, then, when she told me that you shuddered at my very name? If I shuddered, Philip, it was because my whole nature recoiled at the thought of the wrong that you had sustained. 
and, oh, believe me, if she gave you any other assurance than of my continued love, it was because she labored under a sad and unhappy error. Good heavens! ejaculated Philip. How wickedly have I been deceived! Not wickedly, replied Emily. Mrs. Ellis, with all her stern formality, was in that instance the victim of circumstances. She was a stranger among us, and believed you other than you were. But had you seen her a few weeks later, sobbing over her share in the unhappy transaction which drove you to desperation, and, as we then supposed, to death, you would have felt, as I did, that we had greatly misjudged her in return, and that she carried a heart of flesh beneath a stony disguise. The bitterness of her grief astonished me at the time, for I never until now had reason to suspect that it was mingled with remorse at the recollection of her own harshness. Let us forget, however, the sad events of the past, and trust that the loving hand which has thus far shaped our course has but afflicted us in mercy. In mercy! exclaimed Philip. What mercy does my past experience give evidence of, or your life of everlasting darkness? Can you believe it a loving hand which made me the ill-fated instrument, and you the lifelong sufferer, from one of the dreariest misfortunes that can afflict humanity? Speak not of my blindness as a misfortune, answered Emily. I have long ceased to think it such. It is only through the darkness of the night that we discern the lights of heaven, and only when we shut out from earth that we enter the gates of paradise. With eyes to see the wonderful working of nature and nature's God, I nevertheless closed them to the evidences of almighty love that were around me on every side. While enjoying the beautiful and glorious gifts that were showered on my pathway, I forgot to thank and praise the giver but with an ungrateful heart, walked sinfully and selfishly on, little dreaming of the beguiling and deceitful snares which entangle the footsteps of youth. And therefore did he, who was ever over us for good, arrest with fatherly hand the child who was wandering from the only road that leads to peace. And though the discipline of his chastening rod was sudden and severe, mercy still tempered justice. From the tomb of my buried joys spring hopes that will bloom in immortality, from the clouds and the darkness broke forth a glorious light what was hidden from my outer sight became manifest to my awakened soul and even on earth my troubled spirit gained its eternal rest then grieve not dear philip over the fate that in reality is far from sad but rejoice with me in the thought of that blessed and not far distant awakening when with restored and beautified vision i shall stand before god's throne in full view of that glorious presence from which, but for the guiding light which has burst upon my spirit, through the veil of earthly darkness, I might have been eternally shut out. As Emily finished speaking, and Philip, gazing with awe upon the rapt expression of her soul-illumined face, beheld the triumph of an immortal mind, and pondered on the might, the majesty and power, of the influence wrought by simple piety. The door of the room opened abruptly, and Mr. Graham entered. The sound of the well-known footstep disturbed the soaring thoughts of both, and the flush of excitement which had mounted into Emily's cheeks subsided into more than her wonted paleness. As Philip, rising slowly and deliberately from his seat at her side, stood face to face with her father. Mr. Graham approached with the puzzled and scrutinizing air of one who finds himself called upon in the character of a host to greet a visitor who, though an apparent stranger, may possibly have claims to recognition and glanced at his daughter, as if hoping she would relieve the awkwardness by an introduction. But the agitated Emily maintained perfect silence, and every feature of Philip's countenance remained immovable, 
as Mr. Graham slowly came forward. He had advanced within one step of the spot where Philip stood waiting to receive him, when, struck by the stern look and attitude of the latter, he stopped short, gazed one moment into the eagle eyes of his stepson, then staggered, grasped at the mantelpiece, and would have fallen. But Philip, starting forward, helped him to his armchair, which stood opposite to the sofa. And yet no word was spoken. At length Mr. Graham, who, having fallen into the seat, sat still gazing into the face of Mr. Amory, ejaculated in a tone of wondering excitement, "'Philip Amory! Oh, my God!' "'Yes, father,' exclaimed Emily, suddenly rising and grasping her father's arm. "'It is Philip, he whom we have so long believed among the dead, restored to us in health and safety.' Mr. Graham rose from his chair, and, leaning heavily on Emily's shoulder, again approached Mr. Amory, who, with folded arms, stood fixed as marble. His step tottered with a feebleness never before observable in the sturdy frame of the old man, and the hand which he extended to Philip was marked by an unusual tremulousness. But Philip did not offer to receive the proffered hand, or reply by word to the rejected salutation. Mr. Graham turned towards Emily, and forgetting that this neglect was shut from her sight, exclaimed, half bitterly, half sadly, I cannot blame him. God knows I wronged the boy. Wronged him? cried Philip, in a voice so deep as to be almost fearful. Yes, wronged him indeed, blighted his life, crushed his youth, half broke his heart, and wholly blasted his reputation. No, exclaimed Mr. Graham, who had quailed beneath these accusations, until he reached the final one. Not that, Philip, not that. I never harmed you there. I discovered my error before I had doomed you to infamy in the eyes of one of your fellow men. You acknowledge, then, the error? I do, I do. I imputed to you the deed which proved to have been accomplished through the agency of my most confidential clerk. I learned the truth almost immediately, but too late, alas, to recall you. Then came the news of your death, and I felt that the injury had been irreparable. But it was not strange, Philip, you must allow that. Archer had been in my employment more than twenty years. I had a right to believe him trustworthy. No, oh no, replied Philip. It was nothing strange that, a crime committed, you should have readily ascribed it to me. You thought me capable only of evil. I was unjust, Philip, answered Mr. Graham, with an attempt to rally his dignity. But I had some cause. I had some cause. Perhaps so, responded Philip. I am willing to grant that. Let us shake hands upon it, then, said Mr. Graham, and endeavor to forget the past. Philip did not again refuse to accede to this request, though there was but little warmth or eagerness in the manner of his compliance. Mr. Graham, seeming now to think the matter quite ended, looked relieved, and as if he had shaken off a burden which had been weighing upon his conscience for years. For he had a conscience, though not a very tender one and subsiding into his armchair, begged to learn the particulars of Philip's experience during the last twenty years. The outline of the story was soon told, Mr. Graham listening to it with attention, and inquiring into its particulars with an interest which proved that, during a lengthened period of regret and remorse, his feelings had sensibly softened towards the stepson, with every memory of whom there had come to his heart a pang of self-reproach. Mr. Amory was unable to afford any satisfactory explanation of the report of his own death, which had been confidently affirmed by Dr. Jeremy's correspondent at Rio. Upon a comparison of dates, however, it seemed probable that the doctor's agent had obtained this information from Philip's employer, 
who for some weeks previous to his own death had every reason to believe that the young man had perished of the infection prevailing in the low and unhealthy region to which he had been dispatched. To Philip himself it was an almost equal matter of wonder that his friends should ever have obtained knowledge of his flight and destination. But this was more easily accounted for, since the vessel in which he had embarked returned directly to Boston, and there were among her crew and officers those who had ample means of replying to the inquiries which the benevolent doctor had set on foot some months before, and which, being accompanied by the offer of a liberal reward, had not yet ceased to attract the attention of the public. Notwithstanding the many strange and romantic incidents which were unfolding themselves, none seemed to produce so great an impression upon Mr. Graham's mind as the singular circumstance that the child who had been reared under his roof, and endeared herself to him, in spite of some clashing of interests and opinions, should prove to be Philip's daughter. As he left the room, at the conclusion of the tale, and again sought the solitude of his library, he muttered to himself more than once, "'Singular coincidence! Very singular! Very!' Hardly had he departed, before another door was timidly opened, and Gertrude looked cautiously in. Her father went quickly towards her, and passing his arm around her waist, drew her towards Emily, and clasped them both in a long and silent embrace. "'Philip,' exclaimed Emily, "'can you still doubt the mercy and love which have spared us for such a meeting?' "'Oh, Emily,' replied he, "'I am deeply grateful. Teach me how and where to bestow my tribute of praise.' On the hour of sweet communion which succeeded we forbear to dwell, the silent rapture of Emily, the passionately expressed joy of Philip, or the trusting, loving glances which Gertrude cast upon both. It was nearly midnight when Mr. Amory rose, and announced his intention to depart. Emily, who had not thought of his leaving the spot, which she hoped he would now consider his home, entreated him to remain, and Gertrude, with her eyes, joined in the eager petition. But he persisted in his resolution, with a firmness and seriousness, which proved how vain would be the attempt to shake it. "'Philip,' said Emily, at length, laying her hand upon his arm, "'you have not yet forgiven my father.' She had divined his thoughts. He shrank under her reproachful tones, and made no answer. "'But you will, dear Philip, you will?' continued she, in a pleading voice. He hesitated, then glanced at her once more, and replied, "'I will, dearest Emily, I will, in time.' When he had gone, Gertrude lingered a moment at the door, to watch his retreating figure just visible in the light of the waning moon, then returned to the parlour, drawing a long breath and saying, "'Oh, what a day this has been!' but checked herself at the sight of Emily, who, kneeling by the sofa, with clasped hands, uplifted face, and with her white garments sweeping the floor, looked the very impersonation of purity and prayer. Throwing one arm around her neck, Gertrude knelt on the floor beside her, and together they sent up to the throne of God the incense of thanksgiving and praise." End of chapter 48